uh, political theory and um, other stuff, Mike and Paul. And today we are doing uh, something a little bit different. We're starting a new journey. We're going to be doing multiple journeys at a time. This one will be our, our literal life life's work. Yeah, yeah, uh, this will be our, our life's work. We're going to do, you know, and at first, well, the first few episodes of this come out as an addition to our, our normally or normal weekly episodes. Uh, and then after that, we'll put it on Patreon. And if people are uh, really grooving on it, then we can, we can um, you know, have some episodes or a lot of episodes come off of Patreon. Maybe when we complete it, we'll dump it all onto uh, the, the normal stuff afterwards or something. But we are going to do we're going to try to do all of chapter 1 or sorry all of volume 1 of capital by Karl Marx and the reason why we're doing that is uh well what really made me want to do it what really like lit the fire under my ass is reading the intro to riot strike riot with our friend Chris I didn't understand a lot of the stuff that was going on there and it was just a big time reminder that I can read this and I can read that and blah, blah, blah. But if the foundation is not there, then it's going to make a lot of this stuff a lot harder. <laughs> That's why I reached out to Paul and was excited when he was willing to do that. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm excited for it. You know, it's obviously a huge undertaking, which is another reason that we're going to try it on Patreon. You know, the intro to this is as long as some of the books that we have done in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, it's also just a very thick dense work and in my experience myself very much included uh a lot of the uh online talking points revolve around marks one way or the other you either fucking hate him or you love him or somebody categorizes you into one of those two things as your political view i found so often once again including myself nobody has any idea what the fuck they're talking about when it comes to marks even my tiny bit actually having read the communist manifesto manifesto puts me ahead but that doesn't really get into anything of what marx's uh actual or you know the basis for all of his concepts i just don't want to be a part of that crowd anymore uh and once again thankfully mike is gracious enough to do this with me i don't think we think it's going to be a fast thing no but i uh assume that we will truck through until um we can discuss and uh another thing if we can line it up Hopefully, uh, with this book more than anything else, we will have some people who are more knowledgeable about this come in uh, and help us uh, at some points along the way yep. as well. Yep, absolutely. Um, so ahead and, of time, thank you to those people. Uh, right, totally. And I, the other thing too, so I feel like the two reasons we're at least going to, after having a few, the first couple of episodes not on Patreon, the reason why it's going to migrate to Patreon, at least for the foreseeable future, is twofold. A, it is going to be a slog. You know, it's not going to be as entertaining as our other stuff. And, you know, it's debatable how entertaining our other stuff is. <laughs> <laughs> on top of that, on top of that, we are not going to be doing um, necessarily the same level of um, of input and, and riffing on the topic as we do normally. It's going to be much more... Kind of like what we're doing, at least in part, with the racial contract, where it's like, wait, what does this mean? Rather than, oh, this reminds me of X or Y or or whatever. For yep. those factors, at least for this foreseeable future, I don't see it ever being our primary 
uh, content, right? I think it's going to be an addition to our primary, if that makes sense. And like Paul was saying, yes. I would not be able to do this alone. I've tried to do this book uh, like two or three times on my own. I've gotten not all the way through chapter three and then just given up. Well, I recently uh, had to start a physical training regimen just so I could hold <laughs> right? the book. Right? Seriously. I found uh, early on my, sh- my physical strength wasn't even up to Dude, the test. I know. So. I know. I just want to... I'll probably cut this part out and put it in with our racial contract uh, next episode because um, it goes with that more. But I don't want to forget to say this. So two things. The first thing is I learned on someone's fucking YouTube uh, episode. They did an episode called literally like why Africa didn't have wheels. And I didn't even know this was a thing. And uh, in the video, he shows clips of people like Milton Friedman and people like Nick Fuentes talking about how, you know, the the colonizers came to Africa and they saw that Africa didn't even have wheels, which is to imply that they're like backwards and like they didn't have their shit together. Well, this guy goes through it and he talks about how there's evidence and he goes in deep and I'm sure people can just Google it and find it. But he goes in deep on how... Plenty of of civilizations in Africa discovered the wheel and then over time chose not to use it because the terrain wasn't appropriate for wheels. And then he even tells stories about once the colonizers were there, told this one story of this dude at like a, a gold mine or something. And he was like putting the gold into barrels. And just rolling it down the hill. And uh, and it would get down to the bottom where the town was. And the local magistrate or whatever was like, dude, you can't be doing this. Stop rolling shit down the hill. You need to be um, using a cart. And the guy's like, oh, well, I don't want to use a cart. The hill is way too rocky for uh, and muddy or whatever for wheels. It's easier to just roll stuff down. And so they ended up, um, the, the uh, British Empire ended up spending tons and tons of money making roads uh, that could facilitate wheels rather than using sledges and pack animals like people in Africa had been doing for a millennium. And in different parts of Africa, they came up with like super intelligent shit. Uh, Like Egypt, I'm not sure if you followed that, but how they like would transport stuff. Oh, well, I know on the Nile, but I, well, I but need... also with like sand wetting. No, no, I don't know anything. So about they that. figured out like the friction of wet enough sand. I don't know when this was discovered. I want to say fairly recently, but in my memory, that could be anywhere of like the last twenty years. Right. But they found tablets about you know because there had always been debate how did they move these fucking stones everywhere. Um, they found tablets for job descriptions of sand wetters, and they were these people who knew the exact wetness to get sand so that you could easily glide insanely large objects uh, with, like, two people just okay. fucking gliding across sand. It just boils down to that that concept of basing intelligence off of your life or understanding. But I, This is not not saying that these are equivalent, but... A lot of the reason humans spent so long thinking animals weren't intelligent was because they were testing them off of, like, human intelligence tests. Uh, You know, they'd show primates a bunch of pictures of different humans and be like, oh, they're not good at identifying. Uh, And then they realized, like, oh, well, if we showed them primate pictures, they're fucking ace at this. You know, just silly shit like that. It's using being like, well, I don't really understand what's going on, so I'm framing it strictly through my viewpoint, uh, and I'm going to decide they're dumb. 
uh, not realizing that, like, no, these people are leagues ahead of you because they understand the environment that they're in. Yeah, it happens all of the fucking time. Well, it's, we talk about it so much in the racial contract with yep. the colonizers. It's like, yep. dude, you weren't doing any better. In fact, yep. you came in and fucked up a thing that was going very well. Totally, totally. Time. There's one other thing I, I want to talk to you about, and then we can get to what our main topic is today. And that is, so I've um, I've recently started spending more time, uh, I've kind of migrated from the Jordan Peterson subreddit to the Tim Pool subreddit, which is uh, one, one level down as far as scumminess, uh, shittiness, and lack of uh, intellectual integrity. And so I've been watching some of his videos, and uh, he talks about, who was the lady um, that wrote that wrote uh, White Fragility? Oh, I know who you. I'm aware. I'm aware of the words you're talking about, but I don't apparently. It is Robin D'Angelo. Yep. Thank you. So, in that, uh, Robin D'Angelo says, uh, and, and I've read the book. Obviously, there's some problems with how she frames the book. She's looking. Or the topic. She's looking at it much more from the uh, like individualistic like HR standpoint. This is what individuals need to do to get better about race, rather than looking at like systemic stuff. And there's a lot of like um, trying to um, maybe like guild people or, or, or shame people, maybe a little bit. Okay, but some of the underlying stuff is key there. And one of the things she does in that book, which is, is she says, "Hey, I'm." uncomfortable with black people in certain situations she's a white woman right and so tim pool has this shtick where he goes look uh these people he'll say the radical left even though d'angelo is maybe a progressive and he'll say look these radical leftists they are literally teaching racism d'angelo said that she was racist that's horrible she's trying to promote that these people literally are trying to teach your kids to be racist and so what Tim probably intentionally, maybe not, is missing is not that D'Angelo is proud of her racism. What she's saying is, I have a problem. I have a shortcoming. It's because of the culture that I have been raised in and the society I'm part of. But the first step to alleviating that is realizing it, is seeing it so that I can try to, to work my way out of it. And that... No one can can work on their racism if they won't even acknowledge that they have these racist tendencies and that it's not necessarily their fault. And so in that that spirit, I want to tell my uh, most racist racist thought I had, um, because like Ibram X. Kendi says, uh, I believe in talking about people's uh, racist ideas and racist actions rather than trying to label someone as racist, right? Because uh, our society views that as like some, um, like if someone calls you a racist, that means you are racist for the rest of your life. That means you can't do anything good with your life. You're just a bad person. Obviously, if you live in a white supremacist society, everyone's going to be racist, but people can and do every day do good things. So I think it's more important to to talk about the ideas and the actions rather than trying to label whether someone is inherently racist or not, as far as like a moral judgment or whatever. So my <laughs> racist shit was I recently saw a dude at my apartment complex and the, and like like I said, it's like just cultural and societal shit. It popped into my mind like knee-jerk reaction style. I see this really dark black dude carrying a uh, cat container, and I was like, 
what's a black dude doing with a cat? That's fucking weird. And then I was like, oh my fucking God, why? It's because I just have this idea that like cats are for white people. And like it would be weird for a black dude, especially a black dude that isn't dating a white woman, to have his own fucking cat. And it just blew me away. I was like, what the fuck? And then what I thought about is like how there have probably been people seeing me carry a cat carrier and be like, what is that brown dude over there doing with the cat? Isn't that wild shit? I don't know. It just it just uh, yeah. it shocks me because, you know, because it's not often that those thoughts like just so instinctually like pop up for me. Yeah. And so when they do, I'm like, oh, my God, like, yeah, that shit's real. My shit, and what's harder for me to admit, is that I really, it's socioeconomic things that make me uncomfortable. But like, okay. whether or not I will stay on the same side of the sidewalk has no bearing on race, but has a huge bearing on attire, Yes, fucking like group size, yep. and antics I perceive ahead of time. You know, I, yeah, if I'm walking, living where I live now is the first time that I have lived in a racially diverse place, really. Um, I mean, Seattle to some extent, but I could, whether it was intentional or not, you could notice the segregation in Seattle, like it, like crossing into certain areas, you're like, okay, it's about to get more ethnic now. Um, but you know, down where I live, that's not the case at all. It's just fucking, it it is everywhere. Yeah. There is, uh, much less of a, a homogenous racial vibe in these parts, you know, seeing that it just crosses the gamut. Like if generally oddly enough at least in the town that i live more of the uh kids who try to like act tough or shit like that are like little uh white kids with like you know chains and shit that uh it's like yeah dude that that mentality makes me uncomfortable because i'm not at a stage in my life where random aggression is something that i even want to be a mile around you know it's just like nah dude i just want to be stable and boring Yep, that was a huge tangent, but that's the part that I struggle with. Is it's like, dude, I do make uh, those snap judgments pretty quickly. Yeah, being a kid that dressed dirty and shit like that, it's weird for me because I know that's not how I was then. But if I saw my nineteen-year-old self, I would just be like, okay, I'm gonna maybe head the other way, <laughs> uh, or maybe seventeen-year-old sense. Like when I have like fucking spikes in my jackets and shit like that, if I see that kid, I'm like, huh. They don't make eye contact. Maybe not. I I don't know. I think, like, like I will see punk rockers around in my community, and I'll like point poke at Sarah and be like, "Oh my god, look at that kid!" And she'd be like, "Who cares?" I was like, "That's a subhuman shirt." She's like, "It's probably not good music, right? That's probably like that music that you like from high school." I'm like, "It is. It is." But if I see people wearing like a Juggalo shirt, right? If I see three people wearing ICP shirts, yeah, whether oh, white or black, I'm like, all right, dude, I'm good on on these people. Yeah, and it's just the overall attitude as well. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, you are looking for trouble, and yes. I am looking to avoid it at all costs. So absolutely, because <laughs> I'm old and slow. So that's my um, that's my little race rant for today. And, and I think it's just yeah, it's important to understand also the difference between that. And, you know, like, snap judgments aren't necessarily the problem. It's acting out on them or allowing a society to move forward with those snap judgments. Like, if I had seen that dude with the cat and and he was one floor down and rushed down and been like, where'd you steal that cat from? That is not your cat. I've already called the police. Uh, They're on their way. 
Um, that sort of shit. Yeah. Uh, we are going to start the introductions. Mm -hmm. The first of the introductions. The first of the introductions for Capital Volume 1. And I believe this is the fourth edition? Yep, fourth edition out by Penguin. All right. Uh, do you want to start her off, Paul? Sure, sure. Introduction. When Volume 1 of Capital was first published, capitalist industry, though predominant in a few Western European countries, still appeared as an isolated island encircled by a sea of independent farmers and handicraftsmen which covered the whole world, including the greater part even of Europe. What Marx's Capital explained, however, was above all the ruthless and irresistible impulse to growth which characterizes production for private proper for private profit and the predominant use of profit for capital accumulation. Since Marx wrote, capitalist technology and industry have indeed spread all over the world. As they have done so, moreover, not only have material wealth and the possibilities for freeing mankind def definitively from the burden of meaningless, repetitive, and mechanical incre work increased, but so too has the polarization of society between fewer and fewer owners of capital and more and more workers of hand and brain forced to sell their labor power to these owners. The concentration of wealth and power in a small number of giant industrial and financial corporations has brought with it an increasingly universal struggle between capital and labor. I want to say real quick, I think Ernst Mendel is the uh, dude that wrote the intro, by the way. Hell yeah, that's tight. Uh, I just want to point out uh, something that we point out uh, probably exhaustively, but is just how not historically pervasive capitalism is. Uh, Marx is a fairly modern character, and while he was writing, like they said, capitalism was an island encircled by other life modalities, and that was not that long ago. So I just want to one more time point out that capitalism is not the base nature of humanity, and is in fact, even in the shortness of human history, a blip in how we have lived our lives. Yep, totally. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll do the next one. Okay. Um Periodically, the bourgeois class and its ideologues have thought they have found the stone of wisdom. They felt able, accordingly, to announce the end of crisis and socioeconomic contradictions in the capitalist system. But despite Keynesian techniques, notwithstanding all the various attempts to integrate the working class into late capitalism, for over a decade now, the system has appeared, if anything more crisis-ridden, than when Marx wrote Capital. From the Vietnam War to the turmoil of the world monetary system, from the upsurge of radical workers' struggles in Western Europe, since 1968 to the rejection of bourgeois values and culture by large numbers of young people throughout the world, from the eco ecology and energy crises to the recurrent economic recessions. There is no need to look very far for in indications that capitalism's heyday is over. Capital explains why the sharpening contradictions of the system were as inevitable as its impetus yeah imp impetus growth in that sense contrary to a generally accepted belief marx is much more an economist of the 20th century than of the 19th today's western world is n much nearer to the pure in uh, quotes uh, model of capital 
than was the world in which it was composed, which is what you were talking about. Yeah, no, that shit just hit me. And dear God, do I hope he's correct in this sentence. There is no need to look very far for indications that capitalism's heyday is over. Where does it say that? It's the top. It's like the top line oh, of page 12. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. Chris echoes that a lot. Yep. I hope I can get more comfortable in that being the reality. Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not seeing it. Like I just, I hope, cause I, I'll go through small time periods where I'm feeling like maybe uh, the tide has turned, if you will. Uh, not the large tide, but at least the smaller out of this immediate shithole tide. Then there'll be weeks where Trump's approval rating is like 52, 53% in certain polls. And it's like, what the fuck is really going on here? And it's like, maybe the system is starting to weaken. But at the same time, the people who support the system are more fervent in their support than I am comfortable seeing. And that's what scares me, I suppose. It's not like the system is surviving on its own. It's got all of these people who are just so up in arms against anything that questions it. Totally. Section one. The purpose of capital. In capital, Marx's fundamental aim was to lay bare the laws of motion which govern the origins, the rise, the development, the decline, and the disappearance of a given social form of economic organization, the capitalist mode of production. He was not seeking universal laws of economic organization. Indeed, one of the essential theses of capital is that no such laws exist. For Marx, there are no economic laws valid for each and every basically different form of society, uh, begin parentheses, aside from trivialities like the formula which points out that no society can consume more than it produces without reducing its stock of wealth. Whether the natural fertility of the land, the total population, the mass of means of production, or several of these, end parentheses. Each specific social form of economic organization has its own specific economic laws. Capital limits itself to explaining those which govern the capitalist mode of production. Capital is therefore not pure economic theory at all. For Marx, pure economic theory, uh, pure seems to always be in quotes, pure economic theory, that is, economic theory which abstracts from a specific social structure, is impossible. And I think that's why it's in quotes. Quotes, right. Is because it's not like a real thing. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah, it's more of a cons. Okay. It would be similar to pure anatomy, abstracted from the specific species which is to be examined. We can push the analogy further. Although, of course, comparative anatomy is a branch of natural science useful for increasing our knowledge of human and animal physiology. It can only be a byproduct of the development of the anatomical understanding of specific given species. In the same way, Marx's theory of historical materialism does indeed include comparative economic analysis. For example, an examination of the evolution of human labor, human labor productivity, social surplus product, and economic growth, from slave society through feudalism to capitalism. But such comparison can result only from the analysis of specific modes of production, each with its own economic logic and its own laws of motion. These cannot be superseded by or subsumed under eternal economic laws. We can even push the analogy to its final conclusion. If one tries to find some basic common kernel in all anatomy, one leaves the realm of that specific science and enters another, biology or biochemistry. In the same way, if one tries to discover basic working hypotheses valid for all economic systems, one passes from the realm of economic theory to that of science of social structures, historical materialism. Boom. Nice. Boom. That's, Boom. Uh, I don't know what to add to that, but that's all 
extremely on extremely point important shit to keep in mind yeah and i think just really good feel for when people discuss marx it's like well what what do you think he was talking about why do you think he was talking about it and what do you think that makes him i think are all very good questions to help people at least for me to help understand why people are attacking and what they think they're attacking yeah for sure for sure in this way marx's economic theory and its crowning work capital are based upon an understanding of the relativity, social determination, and historical limitations of all economic laws. In the socioeconomic development of mankind, commodity production, market economy, or the distribution of social resources among different branches of production by objective economic laws, in quotes, operating, in quotes, behind the, the back of the producers, uh, do not correspond to, in quotes, human nature, have not always e existed and will not always exist. Capital, explaining the origins of capitalist mode of production, points towards the inevitable historical decline and fall of this same social system. An economic theory based upon the historical relati relativity of every economic system. Its strict limitation in time tactlessly reminds oh what's that word i don't know i mean I'm, it looks like messers but without the e but let's see what this is used as a title to refer formally to more than one man simultaneously or in names of companies uh, for instance messers sophity so i guess just reminds like capitalists, capitalists? Yeah. yeah 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 okay, okay. messers the capitalists their hangers-on and their apologists that capitalism itself is a product of history. Oh, maybe it's referring to like people who are actually capitalists. Right. Like not people who just participate in it, but like the... That own the, the actual, means of production. Yeah. 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 Uh, it is a product of history. It will perish in due course as it once was born. A new social form of economic organization will then take the place of the capitalist one. Uh, it will function accordingly to other laws than those which govern the c capitalist economy. Now that, I guess, kind of makes me understand that we're at the end of capitalism. So I want to go back a little bit. It's just reframe that a little bit. I can see that. I just am afraid the end is going to be exceedingly messy instead of a nice transition into a more applicable mode to how our lives currently are i'm afraid that it's just going to destroy everything around it on its way out that's more of my fear not that i think capitalism will go on in perpetuity but that the end of it will bring the end of a lot of things yep unfortunately and needlessly yep nevertheless capital does not deal exclusively exclusively with the capitalist mode of production although the discovery of the laws which govern this mode of production is itself fund fundamentally objective uh capitalist production is generalized commodity production um generalized commodity production fully unfolds trends and contradictions which are latent in every one of its basic in quotes cells the the commodities what is that 
Uh, oh, the cells you know, are the commodities. Are the commodities. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Um, it is no accident uh, that Marx starts Capital Volume 1 with an analysis neither of the capitalist mode of production nor of capital, nor of wage labor, nor even of the relations between wage labor and capital. For it is impossible to a- analyze any of these basic concepts or categories which correspond to the basic structure of capitalist society scientifically, totally, and adequately without a previous analysis of value, value exchange, and surplus value. But these latter categories in turn hinge upon an analysis of the commodity and of commodity-producing labor. So that's really important because, and this is kind of what we were talking about, about like why we wanted to read this, because it's all, it's like a lot like math or logic, where it's like this, these concepts build on these concepts, build on these concepts. If you don't understand anything at the bottom, you're not going to understand anything moving forward. Yep. And it's just so sad that I was never taught this in a meaningful way in my education. What do you mean by that? The con, like Marx's take mm. on all of this mm. like you know these built his building blocks were dude, very how, poorly how are you teaching me. this in high school dude not in high school oh, okay. okay okay high school aside but i also did college yeah with political science yeah and history um and while marx was discussed uh it was never uh the communist manifesto i read in college right um, but that is not what i should have been reading yep like i understand that these are very large books so maybe don't make me read everything verbatim. Yeah. Uh, but I also, in my later courses, read books easily this large. Yeah. So fucking... Uh, and compared to some of the... Not that anything isn't worth learning, but I am upset that I know a lot more about people that I just... It's a lot... I learned a lot about people who have similar concepts in mind. Okay. So it's okay. not enough attention. For for colleges being communist breeding grounds... Right, uh, right. They don't do a lot of education on it. <laughs> No, they certainly don't. They certainly so, don't. And that's that's not fair. There are a lot better schools than the one I went to. Yeah, I was going to uh, bring that up. Too. I didn't go into graduate programs. Yeah, um, uh, I'll never forget talking because I was just so naive. I was in a uh, like an English one hundred and one class at um, Red Rocks, or I think no, no. At the time, it was uh, a South Seattle Community College, and I'm going to like the first or second um, Oktoberfest gathering in Portland to see uh, everyone. And Dylan Cruz is there, and he and I, we're talking, and he's taking English one hundred and one too. And I was so excited to talk to him about what we were both reading because I assumed we were reading the same stuff and it was shocking how different our syllabus was. You know, the stuff that he was reading, like, you know, multiple, multiple novels, like a semester, you know, and, um, and I'm reading and not, I'm not saying I could have, I read all that stuff, but, uh, you know, and, and then I'm reading like little, um, parts of essays and, and stuff, you know? And I think, uh, and I'm, maybe I don't, I don't want to call out his college, but I'm pretty sure I remember where he went to school. It's also the different modes of education. Like he went to the type of school where grades aren't necessarily a huge part of it. Uh, it's more about the overall, like what's being taught. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I went to a university where grades were everything uh, about your education. And I think it may have made teachers more nervous to overload students. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally. When they know, like, you know, not only do you have to read this, you have to produce something along with it that is graded and you have to, you know, take tests. 
Um, and I, I have never attended a school like the one Dylan went to or say the one your brother went to. Right. Um, but from what my discussion with this is that the emphasis is more on like, we just want you to learn this. We don't need to exactly grade you. We just want to be aware that this is getting into your knowledge base, if you will. Uh, and you get to like craft a lot of your own assignments to go along with it or how you want to present that you learned it instead of it being more of like a standardized kind of production. And then the, the other thing too is like with a, a school like Dylan's, they know that um, the majority of their freshmen, not only do they live on campus, but they don't have to work. You know, like if they have a job, it's either to like beef up their uh, resume or for like beer money. And so teachers are much more comfortable being like, no, dude, you know, if it's, you know, you're going to have eight hours of homework tonight just deal with it whereas um uh obviously at a community college to do that is to to fail students that are already statistically more likely to fail anyhow right and in our group of friends with our socioeconomic for the people we spent most of college with all of us worked if not full-time damn close to full-time yeah um to pay for our own rent and to pay for you know all of our our own shit as well um not to complain i still had it super fucking easy right uh, yeah you know, yeah like totally, I wasn't, like, totally. Uh, many times if i had failed in my endeavors i had many many backups many many backups maybe not ideal for my lifestyle choice backups but i was never close to being like homeless or anything like that totally just to clear that up i'm not trying to be like oh i had such a hard such a hard youth of the day camps and right yeah, no, right it wasn't, it wasn't like that <laughs> Do you want to take the next one? Uh, just as surplus value and capital emerge logically from an analysis of value and exchange value, so too does the capitalist mode of production emerge historically from the growth of commodity production. Without simple commodity production, no capitalism can come into existence. Capital, the Grundrisse, and other basic economic, I have not read that, nor do I even know how to pronounce it. Sorry, Marx. Uh, and the other basic economic writings of Karl Marx therefore include many analyses of simple commodity production, a form of production which existed in manifold ways for nearly 10,000 years before modern capitalism was born. For nearly 10,000 years before modern capitalism was born, but which found its fullest flowering only between the 13th and 16th centuries AD in the Low Countries, Northern Italy, and later Britain, parentheses, and to a lesser degree in Japan before the Meiji Revolution, end parentheses. Objections have been advanced by early Russian Marxist authors like uh, Bogdanov, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that, by later commentators like Rubin, and by contemporary Marxists like Lucio, Coletti, and uh, Louis Althusser once again sorry <laughs> to the view originating with Engels and held by rosa luxembourg to which i subscribe that marx's capital provides not only a basic analysis of the capitalist mode of production but also significant comments upon the whole historical period which includes essential phenomena of petty commodity production these objections however are based upon a double confusion it is true that the capitalist mode of production is the only social organization of the economy which implies generalized commodity production. It would thus be completely mistaken to consider, for example, Hellenistic slave society or the classic Islamic empire, two forms of society with strongly developed petty commodity production, money economy, and international trade, as being ruled by the law of value. Commodity production in these pre-capitalist modes of production is intertwined with and in the last analysis, subordinated to organizations of production. Okay. 
begin parentheses in the first place agricultural production and parentheses of a clearly non-capitalistic nature which follow a different economic logic from that which governs exchanges between commodities or the accumulation of capital so what he's saying there uh, how i understand it I'm asking you what I think he's saying is that uh, although these other societies had elements of capitalism, they did not have all of the elements uh, and therefore they weren't a capitalist economy. Yeah. And it's so much of like they had like the basic tenets of trade and international trade and, and some aspects of labor and stuff. But there were clear people who controlled all of it. Right. There were entities who could completely change the market with one decision or, you know, they could instantly enslave a thousand more people. Therefore, there was just all of these things that had nothing to do with modern capitalism. Um, okay. Um, but the rule of the market did not exist whatsoever. Okay. Uh, it was determined in much different much different. Yeah, it was, it was an organized economy uh, or a planned economy. Uh, but this in no way implies that in societies in which petty commodity production has already become a predominant mode yeah, yeah. okay predominant mode of production in parentheses that is where the majority of the producers are free peasants and free handy craftsmen who own and exchange the products of their labor and parentheses the laws governing the exchange of commodities and the circulation of money do not strongly influence the economic dynamic. Indeed, it is precisely the unfolding of the law of value which leads in such societies to the separation of the direct producers from their means of production, although a whole series of social and political developments influences this birth process of modern capitalism, hastening it, slowing it down, or combining it with trends going in different directions. On the other... Sorry, go ahead. It just... It really goes... Just even this... And obviously, this isn't Marx writing this. But I just wish more people would even read these pages we just read. Uh, as far as understanding the actual historical timeline of capitalism. I think that at the very least... I don't necessarily... I mean, to me, it's propaganda how people have gotten into that mindset. I don't mean to call it that. Uh, I don't think all of it's intentional propaganda. I think of people's disdain for other modes of thought, that, that desertification of the imagination, if you will, is because they think that this is like how humans have always, always been. So why would we change this very basic natural tenet of, of humanity? Uh, and in just a few quick pages, it's pretty easy to understand that not only is this a basic tenet of humanity, it's already kind of lived its lifespan of being affected. Right. Well, and it's not a basic tenet of humanity. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, if it is true that fully-fledged economic accounting based upon quantities of socially equalized labor comes into its own only under capitalism and this only as an objective economic law and not as conscious decisions of owners of commodities, it does not follow at all from this statement that labor quantities accounting cannot begin to appear in pre-capitalist societies in which commodity production becomes a regular institution. 
Indeed, it is precisely when petty commodity production is already largely developed, but at the same time still intertwined with traditional forms of, in quotes, natural economic organization, which imply conscious allocations of economic resources and social labor between different forms of production, in parentheses, through customs, habits, rights, religion, uh, deliberation of elders, assemblies of participants, etc., in parentheses, that the end for a conscious accounting of labor quantities can and must appear in order to avoid basic injustices and inequalities in social organizations still based upon a high degree of social equality and coherence. I have tried to prove by empirical data that this has in fact been the case at different historical periods in different parts of the world. This does not mean that the law of value is a product of of pre-capitalist history, nor does it mean that such still relatively primitive societies were uh, burdened with the same manic pursuit of material rewards and measure and measurements of labor time expenditure down to fractions of a second as our own. For these are indeed pure products of bourgeois society. It only means that the uh, embryonic embryonic forms of the law of value can be discovered in the embryonic developments of commodity production just as the elementary cell of capital the commodity contain contains in a embryonic way all the inner qualities and contradictions of the social category to deny this historical dimension of Marx's analysis is to transform the origins of capitalism into an insoluble mystery. It's what they want. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we have spent a lot of time talking about how ridiculous it is, but I just really liked this sentence. <laughs> Nor does it mean that all such still relatively primitive societies were burdened with the same manic pursuit of material rewards and the measure of labor time expenditure down to fractions of sections seconds has our own when you read that sentence it really or when i read that you read that sentence it really hit me how absurd that really is like it's just fucking like you know it gets down to does anything really matter if it wasn't on the clock right if you weren't getting paid if it didn't produce material wealth yep. isn't that just a waste of time right uh like i'm sure there are so many people uh, who would argue that what we're doing right now is just a complete and utter waste of all of our energy yep and to that i say fuck you yep Totally. Uh, one could argue that this is a rather this is rather a moot point for economists, interesting only for anthropologists, ethnologists, or historians. But its implications are in fact extremely far-reaching. By stating uh, that the analysis of the laws of motion governing the capitalist mode of production necessarily includes at least some essential elements of an analysis of economic phenomena valid for the whole historical epoch encompassing economic organizations in which commodity production exists. One extends the valid validity of parts of Marxist capital not only into the past, but also into the future. For phenomena of commodity production obviously survive, at least partially, in those societies in which the rule of capital has already been overthrown, but which are not yet fully-fledged classless, that is, socialist societies, the USSR and the People's Republics of Eastern Europe, China, 
North Vietnam, North Korea, and Cuba. Capital is no more a guide to understanding the laws of motion of these societies than it is a guide to understanding the laws of motion of developed late medieval society based upon petty commodity production. But it can tell us a lot about the dynamics, in parentheses, and disintegrating logic, in parentheses, of commodity production and money economy in such non-capitalistic societies, and the contradictions which these introduce in the specific and pure laws of motion of the latter. Just really important parts. Uh, you know, it's a thing we discuss a lot. Once again, you know, when people bring up the USSR and China and, and things of that as examples of communism failing, it's like, well, wait, no, it never even started there. So it's hard to it's hard to call it a failure of something that never existed. If capital is not a treatise on eternal economic laws, does it at least contain a science of the capitalist economy? Some Marxists in the first place, the German Karl Korsch, have denied this. For them, as for so many bourgeois critics of Marx, capital is essentially an instrument for the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism by the proletariat. According to them, it is impossible to separate the scientific content of capital from its revolutionary intention. As the Austro-German Marxist Rudolf uh, Hilferding tried to do, this contention overlooks a basic distinction which Marx and Engels introduced between utopian and scientific socialism. What, what? Uh, Marx remained indeed a revolutionary during the whole of his adult life after 1843, but he considered it essential to base socialism (parentheses communism) upon a scientific foundation. The scientific analysis of the capitalist mode of production was to be the cornerstone of that foundation, showing why and how capitalism created, through its own development, the economic, material, and social preconditions for a society of associated producers. In that sense, Marx strove, not indeed in contradiction to, but precisely as a function of this intention, to analyze capitalism in an objective and strictly scientific way. In other words, he did not simply give vent to an aggressive hostility towards a particular form of economic organization, for reasons of revolutionary passion and compassion for the downtrodden and oppressed, nor, it hardly needs to be said, was he motivated by personal spite, material failure, or psychotic imbalance. Marx sought to discover objective laws of motion. There was nobody, not even the typical bourgeois spicer, whom he despised more than the man with scientific pretensions, who nevertheless deliberately twists empirical data or falsifies research results to suit some subjective purpose. Precisely because Marx was convinced that the cause of the proletariat was of decisive importance for the whole future of mankind. He wanted to create for that cause not a flimsy platform of rhetorical er, invective or wishful thinking, but the rock-like foundation of scientific truth. Dude, that's so sick. Yeah, it is. And that just that just reminds me of um, people like uh, Destiny just being like, you know, you guys, I'm not interested in talking to communists and socialists and Marxists because they're just utopians. They, they're, uh, you know, their heads are in the clouds, blah, 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 blah. And although uh, maybe uh, we have some, um, we are... Uh, idealists in the in in the concept of aspiring for something new the the foundation of the thinkers at least um is is rock solid you know yeah I, yeah i think that the so far the introduction has been very good in just discussing what marx was discussing because obviously destiny hasn't even read this far into the intro or uh it would be much harder for him to say some of those things 
hopefully some people will follow us along on this journey. Totally, totally. And uh, yeah, so uh, next next episode of the Mark's Corner, uh, we'll be doing Capital One or Capital Volume One Introduction Part Two, and that's written by Ernst Mendel. Um, and we look forward to y'all joining us then. Thanks. Have a great day.